Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Steve. Hey. Today, we are continuing the Gospel of Mark after a brief excursus last week. Thank you for that. Um, it was marvelous. If you didn't hear Matt preaching last week, uh, you need to go find that one. It was quite marvelous. Um, but today we return uh, to the Gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people but in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, and what Jesus has been trying to fix our attention on in all of this gospel is a redefinition of that ancient concept of the good life. What is it that actually makes for the fullness of human flourishing? And if you've been paying attention, then you've likely been puzzled because what we think of as the good life, what we think of as flourishing, like abundance and prosperity, Jesus keeps turning on its head and saying, no, the good life is found in sacrifice. The good life is found in humility. And those things lead us to a different kind of abundance, a different kind of prosperity that ends up satisfying more than anything else could ever do. And in this teaching that I just read, we have found ourselves at the epicenter of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us in this gospel. At the heart of this good life is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself and how we are to respond to him. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at, firstly, who does Jesus say that he is? Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, the wrong response. And number three, the right response. Who is Jesus? The wrong response and the right response. First, who is Jesus? Now, the last few sermons, as we've been covering Mark chapter 12, we've seen uh, a series of people asking Jesus questions. And the majority of these people asking him questions are not asking because they are genuine seekers. They really want to know the answers to their questions. They have this deep 
existential churning that they have to get answered. No, they're trying to put Jesus on the spot, make him look foolish, put him into the corner, and prove, the, prove to the crowd that they are the ones who are in fact right, and Jesus is in fact wrong. But what I love is that as we've seen over this chapter is that Jesus is too wise, he is too brilliant to be trapped by anybody's words. He, he, is, simply, he is simply too smart to be trapped in the corner. He answers them every time and leaves everyone gasping for air. And I didn't mention this last, not last week, but the last time I preached, which was two weeks ago, uh, at the end of the last passage. It, it ends with this saucy little nugget. It says, and no one dared ask him another question. Oh, I mean, it's just like everybody sees. N nobody's painting him into a corner. Everybody else is being shamed in his presence. Not that he's shaming them, but they, they're, they're the ones on the offensive. Now, I should say here that as a principle, Jesus has an answer for every question. There's, there's no backing him into a corner. I, I, I mean, <laughs> the reason I mention this is because I've heard people say before that, you know, if this whole life after death thing is real, if this, if, if God actually exists and, and I die and then I wake up and then I'm presented with the reality of God, then I'm going to have some questions for him. Right? You've, you've heard this? Um, and there's this tone in the voice that says that God is going to have some answering to do. It's a very strange thing because for almost all of human history, when human beings have related to the divine, it's human beings who have had to answer to God. And this, there's an almost total reversal of that, of those two roles here in modern society. Somehow got it into our minds that God answers to us. What, what about all the suffering in the world? Why don't you do something about that? Why did you allow this to happen when you could have so easily intervened? If you wanted me to believe in you, why didn't you make it easier? And here's the thing. If God were to have an adequate response for such questions, we would gladly acquit him of his crimes. But the most important thing in all of that is that we have become the judge of God rather than God being our judge. But let Mark 12 stand as a sign to those who question Jesus. He won't be outwitted, and he won't be found lacking in his answers. And so starting in verse 35, no one has any more questions for Jesus. But Jesus has a question of his own to ask to the people. And let me be plain here. The questions that we have for Jesus, the questions that we have for God, are not nearly as important as the questions that he has for us. Go ask Job. He will tell you. So let's hear Jesus' question. Starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? 
And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, this question may mean absolutely nothing to you, but it meant a great deal to the scribes who were listening to him at the time. In that day, the scribes were the educated elite of the culture. They were the final interpreters of the scripture. They were revered amongst the community. And as a people, Israel in, in total, as a people whose golden age was centuries in the past when David was king and Israel commanded awe from the surrounding cultures, at this point in history, when Jesus is there in the temple, first century, Israel is smarting under foreign domination. And they had for many years, for centuries, whether it was the Assyrians or whether it was the Babylonians or at the time of Jesus, the Romans. And what made the situation more intolerable was that God had made a promise to his king, David, many centuries ago, that a man from his line would sit upon the throne. This was a person that they began to call the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And according to verse 36, which happens to be a quotation from Psalm 110, the messianic Davidic ruler would return in the power of God and he would put his enemies under his feet. And so the scribes taught their people to long for this Messiah. He shall come. Prepare yourselves. Make yourselves ready for his arrival. He would come, fierce as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. So Jesus comes in and asks them about their own teaching. This is what you've been teaching the people. Let me ask you a question about that. This question is this. What do you mean? What do you mean when you say that the Christ is the son of David? And if, if you had heard their teaching, it would be clear what they meant. They wanted a man to be the Christ. They wanted a man to show up. Born of the line of David, conquering the enemies of Israel, they wanted political deliverance. They wanted the restoration of the kingdom under the leadership of a son of David. And they used this passage, the Psalm 110, they used this passage to prove it. Said, look, the son of David will come, put all of his enemies under his feet. Oh, come, come, son of David. But David, here's the interesting piece, um, Jesus points out, there's more to this passage than just the coming of the son of David to put all of his enemies under his feet. There's actually an introduction to it, and it's very puzzling. He says, David says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, there's some interesting linguistic stuff we can get into here, but that probably won't help us understand the main point of this teaching, which is that the Messiah, listen to this, listen, the Messiah will be both David's descendant and David's Lord. That's the main part of the teaching. Never has it ever been the case in any culture that I know of that the older generation, the, the generation dead and gone, would look at the younger generation and say, 
you have authority over us. But David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So, the question that Jesus poses to these scribes is this. How can David's descendant also be his Lord? You've reckoned, Jesus says, with the fact that the coming Messiah will be of David's line. What you haven't reckoned with is why David is calling him Lord. And according to all the scribal reckoning, which says that the Messiah will come exclusively to reestablish the political kingdom of David, they cannot conceive of the answer to that conundrum. They have no mental categories with which to understand how a descendant of David could also be the Lord of David. But we, people in this room, we have the benefit of more light than they did. In fact, the Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, the pouring out of the Spirit of God, Peter stands up in Jerusalem and he begins to preach. And one of the things he preached was this very passage from Psalm 110. He says, For David did not ascend to the heavens, but himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he interprets it for us. Here it is. Let all the house, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 34, 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you have crucified. He is both Lord, that is divine. All authority belongs to him. And Christ, that is the descendant of David. He is both simultaneously. How can David call his own descendant Lord? Because the Messiah would be more than a political deliverer. The Messiah would simultaneously be David's son and David's Lord. And here we come to the most important part of this first section. Jesus, he's not just throwing around doctrinal nuggets for us to to churn in our minds. He's actually revealing who he is. Excuse me. He's actually revealing who he is, his identity. Yes, According to his human nature, he is the son of David. But he has a divine nature as well, which is to say he is God's son and possesses all the divinity of God himself. And therefore, here's the important piece, therefore, as such, he has all the authority of God himself. Jesus Christ has told us who he is. He is fully God. He is fully a man. He is, as a man, he was our representative on earth. We'll get to that in a little bit later, a uh, little, little later. But as God in human form, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. There is nothing outside of his authority. Everything is his rightful possession. Name one thing that exists in this world, and it is his rightful possession. Every human being that draws breath is, whether they consent to it or not, is under the authority of Jesus Christ. And they will be held accountable for how they respond to his self-revelation as the Lord of all. Even the greatest king of Israel, David, bowed 
to this man. And that means that everyone hearing me right now owes Christ his or her entire allegiance. Your life belongs to him, and he has told you what you must do. Now, before I go to the next point, let me just field one possible objection to all of this. Someone might object and say, well, all of that authority stuff, that's not really how I relate to Jesus. He is a wise and masterful teacher of love and compassion, and I hear him gladly, but at the end of the day, he is just a teacher to me. He's right there along with the Buddha and Vishnu and Tony Robbins. Like, <laughs> I've never actually heard him teach. I'm, I'm sure he's great. I don't know. Maybe not. I, is he great? I don't know. Let's move on. Now, all this stuff about his being, this is still the objection, all this stuff about his being Lord and me owing him my allegiance, that's not how I choose to identify Jesus Christ. That's the objection. My answer is as follows. I'm glad that you find the teachings of Jesus attractive because that means we share something in common. I also find them beautiful. But my guess is if you believe, if, if, it, if what I just said is anywhere close to the character of what you believe, then you probably also believe that people have a right to identify themselves however they please and for everyone else not to conform to somebody else's identity declaration is, is nigh unto a hate crime. So do, do you believe that? Then let Jesus identify himself on his own terms. He says that he is both son of David and David's Lord. He is both a magnificent human teacher of love and compassion, just like the Buddha, just like Vishnu, I don't know about Tony Robbins, and, but he's also the Lord of all creation and therefore has authority over you and I that we cannot escape. So please, let's not perform hate crimes against Jesus by refusing to live in accordance with his own self-revelation. That's my answer. Okay, that's Jesus' self-identification. That's who Jesus is. Now, there are two possible responses that we see in this passage. The first is the wrong response, and that's what we're going to look at right now. And that response is devotion to self. So, for Jesus, he turns after his declaration of who he is, he turns his attention to the folly of, of the scribes. Now, as I mentioned earlier, because the scribes possess no mental categories for understanding or responding to what Jesus is saying, they simply cannot conceive that Jesus has any authority over them. So Jesus outlines for us their particular brand of folly, and then he warns us. In verse 38, he says, beware of the scribes. Now, this would have puzzled the people listening to them uh, listening to Jesus, um, because the scribes were venerated members of the society. Like, people believed these were the men upon whom God's blessing rested in that culture. But Jesus doesn't see their behavior as worth emulating. Rather, 
he sees it as worth condemning. We'll get to that. The first category of Jesus, the, the first category of behavior from the scribes that Jesus condemns is their desire for deference. We see this in verse 38 through 40. He says, beware of the scribes, number one, who like to walk around in long robes. Now, the, the scribes walked around in these magnificent white robes, which was a sign of distinction in those days. So beware of them because they like to wear long robes. Number two, and they like greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, it was common practice. You and I don't know this because we didn't live then, but it was common practice back then that if a scribe walked down the street, everybody would stop what they were doing and rise in honor of these men, of these great religious men. And then thirdly, beware of the scribes because they like to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now, in a culture deeply committed to honor and shame, the scribes were given seats at the table that conferred the most honor, in some cases more than the hosts themselves at these, um, at these dinners. And notice, it's not just that these men were honored by the people. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to honor the things that are honorable, to honor honorable people. That is a good thing. But one word changes it all. That word is like. Did you hear it? Who like to walk around in long robes. Who like greetings in the marketplaces. These scribes, according to Jesus, are intoxicated with the honor given to them by the people. But not only does Jesus criticize their desire for deference, he goes on to examine their abuse of privilege in verse 40. He says, so beware of the scribes, and then he moves on to who devour widows' houses. What does that even mean? Well, despite the honor that these people had in that particular culture, it's not like they were on the payroll. This was not, a, to be a scribe, you didn't have like a, you know, a paycheck and a, and a 401k. You didn't have, it's, you relied on the goodness of other people to support you. And in a culture where hospitality to strangers, and especially hospitality to venerated people, was required, apparently what these scribes were doing was pulling up to widows' houses and saying, hey, you owe me this, and sponging off all their resources when they could have easily gone elsewhere. And then it says, beware of the scribes, because uh, for a pretense, they make long prayers. Now, again, nothing inherently wrong with long prayers. Psalms give us some very long prayers. But Jesus brings into focus the motivation of these long scribal prayers, namely, it's pretense. And the definition of pretense is to try to make other people believe that something is true when it is, in fact, not true. The fuel which makes their prayers run is not the love of God, but it's a desire to make others think that they love God. Okay, so that, that's Jesus' overall critique of these scribes. So why, so this is why Jesus is teaching the crowds to beware of these men. Their devotion at the end of the day, while it looks beautiful, it looks as though it is to God, their devotion at the end of the day is to themselves. They simply cannot recognize Jesus for who he is. They cannot accept the claims that he's making. They wait for the son of David to arrive 
and they study their scriptures, and they make their long prayers, but all of it is for naught because the son of David has arrived and is standing right in front of them, and they cannot recognize him because their vision is blurred and their understanding is blunted with self-intoxication. And this intoxication is not without consequence. Because of this behavior, because of this self-intoxication, Jesus pronounces doom upon them at the end. Verse 40 says, because of all of this, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's an astonishing thing to say about the most honored and venerated religious leaders in that culture. And it really comes down to this. Acting religious does not bring about the delight of God. The ornaments of faith are no substitute for the reality of faith. And this fundamental misunderstanding comes about because these men cannot recognize Jesus for who he actually is, for who he reveals himself to be. So that's the wrong way of responding to Jesus' self-revelation. Now Jesus gives us a picture of the right way. So third, devotion to God. What does someone look like who's not just playing at religion, but actually possesses the real thing? For that, we need to look at verses 41 to 44. Verse 41, and Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to them and said to them, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all that she had to live on. Okay, it's easy to look at this story and to think that it has to do with um, how much people give to support the work of the temple, or in our case, the work of the church. And that's kind of true. It's, it's there, but it's not the main point. But let me address that parenthetically. I feel like I always have a parenthesis in these, but here it is. All right, so here's the parenthesis. Before we get to the foundational meaning of this image, if you read your New Testament, let's talk about giving, okay? We, we, we have offering boxes here, except in the temple they were like little trumpets. Maybe we should get trumpets. Can we get trumpets? Um, uh, what was I saying? Okay. Um, <laughs> so taken with the image. Uh, oh, yeah. So if you read your New Testament, um, y- you will notice that there's no provision. There's, there's no clear guidance for how much we are to give to the work of the church. So what a lot of Christians do is they reach back into their Old Testaments and they say, ah, it is a tithe. It is 10% of our income that we are to give. The strange thing is, is that when you go back and you look into the Old Testament, it doesn't say we are to give 10%. Well, that's not true. It does say that, but it doesn't only say that. In fact, if you go back and you look through and you add up everything that was required of an Old Testament believer to give, percentage-wise, you're sitting at about 30%. So if we're going to be Old Testament Christians, let's do it faithfully. 30%, people. But, but Jesus, 
never gives us a, an indication of how much we are to give, nor does any apostle ever take that question up. But what we do have is the picture of this widow, this, this poor widow putting in the temple treasury a pitifully small amount, but it's all that she has to live on. So I think the New Testament norm for giving is not a number, but it's a reality. And that reality is sacrifice. When it hurts, when there's something fearful about it, it seems to be like the right amount because, because therein lies the faith that God will make up what I have lost. And maybe one of the reasons we're not given the specific commandment about how much to give is because a law requires no relationship with God. You see the number, you do it. I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to figure it out. This is 10%, I could do 10%, I would do 10%. Or I don't do 10%, I feel guilty, and I deal with it. But to have, but have no number, to have a reality, sacrifice, that requires a constant return. Father, is, is this, is this what you would have me give? Is, is this what you are inviting me into? And we have to keep coming back. It invites relationship. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. Okay, in parenthesis. Now, that meaning is clearly there in the text. But that's not the main meaning of this poor widow. The main meaning has to do with her devotion to God. We've already seen what it looks like to be devoted to the self. That's the scribal way of life. But here's what it looks like to be devoted to God. The scribes just skim the cream off the top and just give of themselves marginally. This poor widow, who is of no estate gives everything that she has. And the strange thing is that the rich are giving far more, at least in terms of bare numbers, right? You just put it in the calculator. They're giving way more than this widow is giving. It's, her, her offering is so pitifully small, it's not going to make much of a difference in the operation of the temple. But Jesus teaches us that our giving is not about amount but about proportion. And make no mistake, she's not just dropping coins into the treasury. She's dropping her very life into it because it's all that she had to live on. There's this old rabbinic story about a priest who goes out into the country, and as he is walking along, a poor widow sees him and is grateful for his presence in the country and has nothing to give him except a small handful of flour. Well, the priest looks at the handful of flour and he rejects the offering. What can you do with a handful of flour? You can't make bread. You can do nothing with it. You can't sell it. It'll, you can do nothing with it. And so he rejects the offering. That night, the priest goes to bed and he has a dream. And in the dream, the Lord spoke to him and said, do not despise this poor widow's offering. Though her handful of flour seems a pitiful offering and worth nothing in your sight, it is as if she offered her life. In other words, this widow has no business giving away the very material that will enable her to survive. By offering what looks like nothing to our sight, she is actually offering her very life. And that is the meaning of Jesus' teaching about this widow. It's not about money. By giving those two coins, this widow was giving her life away. 
Now, we don't know how Jesus knew that about her. We, we don't know that, how he knew that this was all that she had to live on, but he seems to know. And what's astonishing to me is that we are told that she puts in two copper coins, which make up a penny. Now, if I'm sitting around, I don't know if you're like me, but if I'm sitting around <laughs> looking at everything that I have to live on and it's broken into two coins, I mean, I'm keeping one of them. It's all I have. And, and by the way, if I put one in, that's 50% of all that I have to live on. Isn't that honorable? If this is about money, absolutely. That is honorable. No doubt. But we're talking about giving our lives to the one whom David calls Lord. And there is no such thing as giving part of ourselves to him and reserving part for ourselves. I know of no one who has written about this reality better than C.S. Lewis in a little sermon that he preached called The Slip of the Tongue. And it is an egregious sin of public speaking to ask you to endure the length of quotation I'm about to ask you to endure. But <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I, I teach this stuff. I, I know. Like, I, I edited it down as much as I could, but you must hear this. You must. I, I can't help it. Here we go. This is my endlessly recurrent temptation. To go down to that sea, I think St. John of the Cross called God a sea. And there neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash, careful not to get out of my depth and holding on to the lifeline which connects me with my things temporal. Our temptation is to look too, is to too eagerly look, excuse me, our temptation is, is to look, <laughs> sorry, my, mine is misspelled, that one's up there is right. Our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. We are, in fact, like honest but reluctant tax taxpayers. We approve of an income tax in principle. We make our returns truthfully, but we dread a rise in the income tax. We are very careful to pay no more than is necessary, and we hope, we very ardently hope, that after we have paid it, there will still be enough to live on. But... There is no parallel to paying taxes and living on the remainder. For it is not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God's demand, God demands. It is not even all our time and all our attention. It is ourselves. He will be infinitely merciful to our repeated failures. I know of no promise that he will accept a deliberate compromise. For he has, in the last resort, nothing to give us but himself. And he can give us that only insofar as our self-affirming will retires and makes room for him in our souls. To, to go down to that sea, not just to splash in the waves, but to plunge beneath them. For everyone who can see that Jesus is Lord, that is our great desire. And yet, we are weak. We splash and we dabble. Careful not to go too far out of our depth. 
for fear that the things that we love will be lost to us. And a preacher telling you to wade deeper is not likely to get you there. Even Jesus with all his authority saying, go deeper, is not likely to get you there. I think the only thing that draws frightened people like us into the deep is to see a thing of extraordinary beauty just out of our reach. To see a box full of treasure just might entice us to let go. So if that's the case, I would like to show you the treasure in the deep. And the treasure, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. He taught us this morning that he is both Christ and Lord. He is both descended from David as the political king of Israel, but he is simultaneously the sovereign Lord of all to whom our allegiance is owed. And since he is such a marvelous and luminous being, it would have been his prerogative. And it would have been right and fitting to walk down the streets of, Jer of Jerusalem wearing robes, long flowing white robes of distinction. It would have been right for everyone to stop what they were doing and rise in reverence of this king. It would have been fitting even for the poorest of poor to offer all that they had in support of this man. But far from this, Jesus lived his life more along the lines of the poor widow who gave all in devotion to God, all that he had to live on. Instead of robes of distinction, he was given a robe of mockery. Instead of receiving greetings in the marketplaces, he received people's jeers and insults. Instead of leeching off the poor for his own benefit, he himself became the poorest of the poor. And one morning at the end of that road of disgrace was the place of his offering, the cross of Golgotha. And here, at that place, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, did not give a little bit out of his abundance, which was astonishingly, astonishingly large. He gave all that he had to live on. And he entrusted himself to his Father in heaven and plunged beneath the waves. And he invites us to that same kind of sacrifice in our own lives. He asked us to do nothing that he has not done himself. And yes, it's true. We will have repeated failures. But his atoning sacrifice ensured his enduring mercy and forgiveness. Now, one of the things, I'll end here, one of the things I love about this story is how it opens. It says that, about at least the story about the widow, it says that Jesus sits down and watches people putting their offerings into the offering box. Now, I would imagine that immediately sounds like ominous and sort of Orwellian, but that's not, in, in this case, we can see that he's watching not to condemn someone, he's watching so that he might find something to delight in. He watches, and then he gathers his disciples and says, look at her, oh, look at this woman. 
Though she pleases no one else in this world, she pleases me. And brothers and sisters, Jesus watches us even now. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he watches, not to condemn us, but to praise us. Those of us who belong to him, he watches to condemn to praise us, excuse me. And so the invitation is this. Let us forsake our lifeline to the shore. Whatever it happens to be, let us plunge ourselves beneath the waves and into the deep by the grace of God. And when we do, we shall please him whom we are made to please. Now we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at this table, Jesus intends to give us grace to forsake all but him. This table is not a stage on which we act out our devotion for everyone to see. This is not the table of long and flowing robes and greetings in the marketplaces. It's the table for those who have no hope except in Christ. It is for the despised, it's for the poor, it's for those who curse themselves for clinging to the lifeline attached to the shore and feel powerless to wade into the deep, but they long to. Here at this table, Christ stands to meet you and to show you the beauty of the treasure he offers, his body broken for you, his blood poured out for you, and for the forgiveness of your sins, even yours. So, if this is true of you, then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray.